everybody. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know we have published our first episode to YouTube. So if you want to know what Jason and I look like, feel free to check out the link in the episode description below or just search us up. Surely you can't be serious podcast on YouTube. On with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here today for a special rerun episode. We watched reruns when we were kids. We can we can put them out there. I watched reruns all the time. That's what you did during the summer. I know. You don't want to miss anything that you you know happened a long time ago. Right. you got to bring these things up again. E- exactly. So this episode came out when we very first started together. We jumped in with just a few pairings before this, just a two, I think. And then we decided it's time to do Van Halen versus Van Hagar. It's one of our most popular episodes to date. Now, when we recorded this... All of the members were still alive at that time. Right. Uh, we've lost Eddie a couple years ago, not too long after it came out, honestly. So it's nice to go back and listen to it and revisit it. And that's what we're doing today, guys. If I may be so bold, I am going to prepare you guys for this summer when we finally tackle a Van Halen album, track by track, 1988's OU812, and we're going to compare it with another album from 1988. I'll save the matchup for down the road. So this is kind of a taste. It'll get you going. Enjoy our comparison of Van Halen versus Van Halen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast with your co-hosts, James D. Graves, and Jason Colvin. Hey, Jason. What's up, D? How's it going, man? Oh, uh, running a little bit hot tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel tardy. How exciting. I love that we're going to talk about the Van Halen, Van Hagar dispute today and i love that you really like van hagar because i really like van halen i like them both but uh, this is a very interesting argument to get into because this is a definite line in the sand there's different people on both sides of this argument but it's one of the biggest arguments of the 1980s that we're going to talk about just like always catch us on twitter Chime in with what you think about what I say, what you think about what Jason says, or what you know where we both got it wrong and what we're missing here. You can catch us on Twitter at Shirley Podcast. That's Shirley S U R E L Y. Don't call me Shirley. The Van Halen boys are born in 1953 for Alex, 55 for Eddie, and so. They're born in Amsterdam. Their father is a musician. He is a big band player. But this is the early and mid-1950s, which means that music is changing. Elvis and Chuck Berry have come out, and rock and roll is the thing, and big bands are out. They decide, we're not going to stay here anymore. We're going to pack up and chase the American dream. Move to Beverly. Yes. Slash Pasadena. Yes, close enough, right? Right. And so uh, they take their two young boys in 1962. It's 1962. They get on a large boat to trans the Atlantic, 
and to help pay the way the dad Jan plays music with the band and then after a few nights they the boys who had been uh, classically trained in piano at that point were still very young but could play the piano well um, they had them get up in between sets and then the next night they were sitting at the captain's table because the star little boys uh, won everyone's hearts and so they became the star of the show That's i think right. at yeah. that point the seed was planted and they were ready to be stage musicians for the rest of their lives it doesn't take very long to figure out there are benefits to being the performance i don't know have you ever been in a performance where like at the end of the performance everybody's standing up and cheering it's it's no. <laughs> it, it is it is more addictive than I think I could think of anything else that could be. It is an amazing amazing feeling, and so I can totally understand anybody's desire to chase that monster once you've seen it. Cool. All right. All right. So they make the journey in nine days over to the United States. They move to Pasadena, California, as we said. Yep. And when they arrive, they don't know any. English. They know two. They know two English words. That's right. Alex says that when they came over, they knew two English words. One was yes, and the other was accident. Accident, which <laughs> apparently was just the first word in the book that their mom was trying to teach them English from, AC. They actually, uh, Alex uh, is encouraged to pick up the guitar. Yeah, they buy him a electric guitar, silver tone, and Eddie uh, decides that he's going to go out. He enjoys the drums. They came over in 1962, and then 1964, of course, is when you have the British invasion. Yep. And so they are introduced to the rock and roll of the Beatles and of the Dave Clark Five. And Dave Clark Five is the drummer who Eddie wanted to be. He wanted to go and play drums like that guy, and so he got himself a paper route. He... Uh, worked hard just like you would in the movies and saved up all his money and got himself a drum set and then while he was away on his paper route Alex would go and pound on those drums while he was working hard to pay for the drums his brother was learning the drums right and he was actually quite skilled at it and when Eddie realized what was going on you know I can imagine the challenge kind of like out of Step Brothers hey man did you touch my drum set? Nope. Cause it's just weird, because seems like someone definitely touched my drum set. Yeah, that is weird, because I didn't touch them. <laughs> and then it was, you know, uh, you're better than me, so the heck with it, I'll just play your dang guitar. First band that they had was? Uh, the first band that they had was called The Broken Combs. The Broken Combs. Yes. And does it sound like a junior high name to you? It does sound like a junior high name. And then a little more sophomore. They played with a guy for a while who was playing bass for him, and then his dad got a job as a preacher about 300 miles away. So they're out their bassist. They're out their place to practice. They had to find a new bassist, which they did, and his name was? His name was Mark Stone. Mark Stone. And so they actually had another band that they called the Trojan Rubber Factory. But they kept playing hard, and they were hard-working musicians. They would pound the pavement, they would put up posters everywhere to let everybody know what they were doing, and they were obsessed with the band. And at this time, Eddie is the one that's doing all the lead singing. That's right. And they are going to parties. They're usually like backyard parties, which was pretty popular back in the day. Not only would they go out and, and invite everyone that they could to the party, their music was really 
really loud. And so frequently it wasn't just a question of if the cops would show up, it would be when uh, are the cops going to show up. And at one point the cops showed up and said, you guys are so loud, we were looking for you four blocks away. <laughs> at the same time, uh, young David Lee Roth, who was born in Indiana, had some experiences in New York City with his uncle getting to go to some of the clubs there in New York City, got to see Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix and definitely caught the bug at that point and knew that that was the type of lifestyle, the New York City lifestyle and the stage lifestyle that he wanted to be a part of. But as it turns out, he wasn't really into rock and roll so much as the, the other guys were. He liked listening to kind of the, the swing and some of the stuff that you most of the kids those days just weren't listening to. Yep. I heard Eddie talk that uh, Dave actually very much enjoyed disco. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see later on when he comes into the band, he really kind of brings that element, which then helps them come into the public eye. Okay, Jason, so I can remember when I was a little kid watching Van Halen perform, watching the jump video, thinking to myself, I cannot wait until I have a full head of chest hair like David. <laughs> he's got some <laughs> amazing chest hair. He has got the best chest hair ever. Like he's he's thin and he's not rough and tough at all, but he's got that rough and tough manly hair. You know who likes that now? Who's that? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody likes the big fluffy hair on your chest anymore. I, I mean, there may be a few folks out there, but today's standards are clean, trim, which brings us to our sponsor for the day, Manscaped.com. That's right. It is time to buy Christmas gifts, and Manscaped.com makes some great Christmas gifts. We, we're offering a 20% coupon. You type in Sirius20, you get 20% off, and you can get the man in your life, a great stocking stuffer. They've got the lawnmower. They've got the weed whacker. Nobody wants the jungle. We're no, I, I've this. been to the edge. I stood and looked down, but I couldn't see anything because of all the chest hair in the way. <laughs> so I had to go to manscaped.com. Might as well just jump and go to manscaped.com. And don't forget to put in that code, Serious20. Get you 20% off, and it helps us as podcasters. So please go patronize our sponsor. If I may be so bold, yeah. go right now. Oh my. <laughs> yes. Whack it. Whack it. So, also born in Chicago around the same time as these guys is Michael Anthony. And his family has moved to Pasadena as well. He's started a band. He's playing bass and singing for the band as well. So these guys are all doing their own thing around each other. Uh, Michael Anthony's band is called Snake. Snake. And David Lee Roth's band is called? Red Ball Jets. Red Ball Jets. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> um, and so uh, the, the guys have Mark Stone. Eddie is singing and Alex is telling Eddie... You're, you're really not carrying it as a singer. That's There's right. Nobody, nobody would ever question your abilities as a guitarist, but we need to find another singer. Mm -hmm. And um, as it turned out, they had to rent their PA system. And so they would pay somebody 10 bucks per show to go rent the system. And one of the guys they were renting from was? Uh, this kid named David Lee Roth. Kid named David Lee Roth. His dad was an eye surgeon. Um, and so he had a little bit more money than the rest of the boys. And so after a while, Alex just said, you know, we need a lead singer and we need his PA system. Might as well <laughs> get two birds with one stone here and just have him join the band and be our lead singer. In a matter of... $10, they land 
one of the greatest front men of any rock band of all time. Absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah, there are very few lead guys, lead singers that stand out as performers, the guys that bring the live show to life. And there's no question that David Lee Roth is one of those guys. No doubt. Now, at that time, they still had Mark Stone as a bassist, but Mark Stone was an honor student, straight A student, and the boys felt like he wasn't he didn't have his priorities in the right place. I know he's too busy making grades, and his dad came to him and said, "You need yeah, to go to you school." You need to go to school, right? <laughs> I mean, no, no dad is going to say you need to choose joining some silly rock and roll band with a guy who wears skin tight, buttless pants. <laughs> and so uh, they go. The the boys actually go to Mark Stone and say, "Listen, we just we don't think that you're committed like you need to be," and they let him go. You're out. Oh, by uh, the way, we're going to become one of the greatest rock bands of all time. See yeah. you later. Sorry about that. So they, they, perf- they, as I said, they're all performing in similar stages. And at one point, that PA system that had brought them together with David Lee Roth goes out. And they're stuck at the show with no PA. And as it happens, Snake is performing at the show. And, Sna- and Michael Anthony's like, hey, you can use our PA, no problem. And within just a few days, they're calling him up and saying, hey, would you like to come be the bass player for our band? We'll get into it a little bit later, but his voice actually provides many of the harmonies that, I mean, it's so important. Unquestionable. The, the Van Halen does not sound like Van Halen without Michael Anthony providing those backup vocals. The, the, that high-pitched tenor that he has... Is amazing. So we've gone. Th- we go through a few band names here. We we hit with uh, the Broken Combs. We had the Trojan Rubber Factory. They were called. They called themselves Genesis for a while, and then they're like, "Oh wait, there's a really successful band out of England that everybody knows now, called Genesis." So they had to give that one up as well. That's right. We're Mammoth for a bit, and then David Lee Roth was like, "You know what? Van Halen sounds cool, and yep. it's your name." Let's make the man, let's make the band name. That was Van David Halen. Lee Ross' idea. Absolutely. Yep. Really cool. Hello, Southern California. I give you the mighty Van Halen. And so they become Van Halen. Then Michael Anthony joins, and they are off and running. Off and running. Once they had gained that big following, they finally landed a gig as kind of the house band for a place called Gazaris. That's right. That's in Hollywood. And uh, oddly, from time to time, uh, Bill Gazari would come up to uh, David and say, Hey, Van, you guys did a really good <laughs> job last night. Let me give you a couple extra bucks. I guess he thought he was like Van Morrison or something. So <laughs> That's awesome. The thing about uh, that, that we need to keep in mind about um, both Alex and Eddie is that they were they're classically trained, and that translated into their music. Um, the the interesting thing about the classic training that Eddie had is that he never ever learned to read music, um, which, given his capacity with both keyboards and with uh, guitar and and several other instruments, Drums is an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah. That means that he can't read it he's able to do what he does just from listening to it and not only that he fooled his music teacher at the time into believing that he could read music um it was five years before the music teacher was performing a new piece of music for him and told him he needed him to turn the pages for him and he was 
Like what? he was lost. He, he didn't was know when lost. To turn the he was just like, "What are you? Why aren't you turning the page?" He's like, "I, uh, <laughs> I don't have any idea where you are right now." And this, I had a piano teacher when I was a kid, and my gosh, I, I could not have lasted like he did. I just, it was painful for me to go to those music lessons. She was probably 175 years old, <laughs> had translucent skin. I mean, I just remember Mrs. Mackey. I, God rest her soul. Uh, Mrs. Mackey, call in the podcast. We want to hear from you. Right. And and, and say hello to Jesus for us. <laughs> Mrs. Mackey was the organ player at my church. Uh, always had a little tic-tac that she would put in her mouth while we had our music lesson. And I never learned a thing in that. <clears throat> Go ahead. Just, just so everybody knows, you are a guitar player. And I am not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love talking about some of the things that have gone on with the guitar. And Eddie was obviously an inspiration to me playing guitar in the first place. He had a special guitar. Yeah, absolutely. He had a special guitar. So here's something, here's something that many people don't know about Eddie, which is just absolutely amazing. The, the man was an inventor. He, wasn't, he didn't just redefine the way that you play the guitar. He created his own guitar. The guitars at the time, the the two primary guitars that anybody was going to use were a Gibson Les Paul and a Fender Stratocaster. And Eddie loved the whammy bar on the Fender Stratocaster because you could you could change the the tone of the notes. You could do different sounds with that whammy bar, but it only had a single coil pickup, which means that it would have these high pitch kind of twangy things that would happen when you turned it up. Now, the 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 Les Paul had these hum they called them hum bucking pickups which means they bucked the hum they didn't the hum wasn't there for him and so what Eddie did was he decided I'm just going to make my own guitar and he goes to um, a parts a guitar parts store and says I need a body and I need a neck and he, the the guy's like well you don't want that body because it's a second and Eddie's like I don't know what that means second what second the second up, okay, that's good. I'll right. take that one then. Right. Not realizing that it meant it was like naughty and not good wood and, and horrible right. sound would come out of it. But it didn't matter because what he was about to do didn't, it changed, it, it corrected all of those problems. So he takes that guitar body home and he starts chiseling out the wood to put the humbucking pickups inside of the Fender style body so that he can have his, have his humbucking pickups and his whammy bar. And the result is a guitar that doesn't sound like any other guitar. It has corrected the hum problem with the Fender, still has the whammy bar that he can use. And then he had other issues with feedback. And, it, and who knows why he decided to do this. I don't know what caused it in his brain, but he decided to take the pickups. He was thinking maybe those little wire coils are what's causing all the feedback. They're vibrating in there. And he he's got a coffee can and some paraffin wax, melted the paraffin wax, stuck the pickup inside of it, and just kind of waited until the plastic started to melt and yanked it out of there. And the paraffin wax then sealed all those coils so that they didn't have the feedback. And so once again, he's created something new that nobody at the time was doing, but now is a standard practice of the industry. And so he's now has... A guitar that he can crank all the way up 
doesn't have all of the sound problems that he had before, and he's super excited. He's working at a music store, and they get in a Marshall. Now, he's had his little, his brother's little silver tone, which you're not going to get any real sound out of that. But the Marshall was like the gold standard. And so he worked for the rest of the summer to buy this Marshall. And he plugged it in and turned it all the way up. And it sounded awesome and really, really loud. Really loud. Like I can imagine, you know, Huey Lewis, right? I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. <laughs> so he couldn't get the sound that he wanted out of this thing because he had to turn it up all the way to get the right sound and then oddly comes across this classified ad selling a different Marshall and so he's like maybe this one will be better he buys that Marshall he plugs it in he plugs the guitar in and it doesn't play and he walks away and he leaves it open leaves it on and he comes back and he's like I'm gonna give it another try and just picks it up and he realizes he can hear sound well, what's happened is he didn't realize that the Marshall was a European-style uh, power supply, and so he had had it at the 220 instead of the 110, and so it had taken just longer to charge up. But what happens is he plays it as it's halfway warm, as it's gotten that slow build of voltage, and he gets the sound that he wants without the volume problem. And that gives us that sound of the guitar, the one that everybody knows, that everybody's like, yeah, that's Eddie's guitar. We know that sound. And then he's got it all put together. He paints it black. That's kind of boring. Right. So he's got some tape laying next to him and just randomly decides, oh, I'll just put some tape in kind of a crisscross pattern on the guitar, and then I'll paint it white. And creates the Frankenstrat look, which is the thing that we all associate, all associate with that Eddie is, Van Halen. That's become their iconic look. And later he puts more tape on it and paints it red. Red, yes. The first one, if you look at the if you look at the Van, Van Halen debut album, you'll see he's got a, a white guitar with uh, black stripes. Uh, later on, like you said, paints puts more tape on it, paints it red, and then you've got the red with the black and the white. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It looks yeah. great. Yeah, work of art, uh, just out of just kind of dumb luck, really. So now they're playing the clubs. They're playing the clubs, and they've got a huge following. When they're in the when they're in Gazaris, they've got fifteen hundred people in there listening to them. But the problem is, the rest of the world doesn't care about rock and roll. That's right. Late seventies. This is the time of the Bee Gees and disco, Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> The only guys who are getting any songs out there even a little bit are like Aerosmith and Kiss. Right. So speaking of Kiss, one night while Van Halen's playing. Yeah, at uh, it's at the Starwood, which is another club there on the Sunset Strip. Um, Gene Simmons happens to be in the audience. And he's he comes to them immediately after the show and they're like, oh my gosh, there's Gene Simmons, it's and he doesn't, demon, have any, yeah. he doesn't have any makeup on, and it's amazing. <laughs> and he's like, has anybody signed you guys? And he, they're like, no. And they, well, who's managing you? Nobody. Well, I, okay, come with me. I'm going to take you to New York City. We're going to make a demo, and we're going to get you guys signed. That's right. And that's exactly what they do. There they go, this young, excited band that's been playing hard for four or five years now. They go, and they they do the songs. They By and the time... At this time, I mean, at this time, Gene Simmons is one of the biggest rock stars in the world. Absolutely. 
And he shows up and says, I want to make you guys the next big thing. Yeah, which, to, I mean, if I was in that situation, I'd be like, that's it. We've made it. We don't have anything else to worry about. Gene Simmons loves us. We've got a full album worth of original material that we know backwards and forwards because we play it every single night. They go and they record their album. One problem is they can't use their own instruments. So they lose the sound that Eddie had spent so long creating. And then the other problem is... That album promptly does... Check squat. Because Gene Simmons said, I don't think you guys should call yourselves Van Halen. I think you guys ought to change your name to Daddy Longlegs. Daddy Longlegs. Daddy Longlegs. Which, who knows? Maybe that would have worked. I don't know. Nah, I don't think so. No, it's not the same thing. And they, right? they do the right thing. When Gene Simmons tells you to do something... After he had branded Kiss, there's going to be a big temptation to, to change. Yeah, how do you not? How do you, I mean? If you're if you're with that iconic figure, how do you not go? Yeah, that sounds great. Whatever you say, Gene. That's right. You're the man. You're worth a bazillion dollars, Mr. Simmons. I'll do whatever you say. Right. But they say no. That irritated him, and uh, he made the comment that these guys are never going to make it. Right. Yeah, and then and his management thought the same thing. They're never going to make it. So all of this excitement, all of this anticipation. And uh, the result is a demo tape with songs that aren't that, that aren't played on their own instruments. Marshall Burrell is the one who who talks to Mo Austin uh-huh. and uh, Ted Templeman and uh-huh. says, "These guys are going to be playing at the Whiskey Go Go tonight. Check Go check them out." And this rainy, slow evening, maybe forty people in the crowd. Not really the best crowd to be doing an audition for the. The big wigs at the uh, big Warner wigs Brothers. of Warner Brothers Records, and the, and they liked it. They loved liked it. what they heard. Yeah, yeah, they loved it. They came back and they said, "Boys, we want to sign you." So then the next thing that happens is they've signed this contract. They're ready to start touring to put their uh, so, put their performances on the world stage, and so they join the tour of a band called. I don't know. Montrose. Montrose. And a band called Journey. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm sure everybody's heard of Journey, and most of you have heard of Montrose. Um, But what you may not know is who the lead singer of Montrose is. Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar, that's right. Very fortuitous. So, yes, an odd coincidence. And here's an interesting bit of information that came out. You know... People, a lot of people were not impressed with David Lee Roth. And among those were the Warner Brothers guys. They didn't appreciate what he brought to the stage. And to be honest, uh, David Lee Roth doesn't have a stellar voice. And as it turns out, they proposed some other singers and propositioned some other singers. And one of the singers that they propositioned was... Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar, yeah. And he did not disclose this until just in the last, I don't know, three or four years, I would say. But he, yeah, he was approached uh, early on to take Dave's spot and unbeknownst to the rest of the band. It's incredible. You know, Dave brings charisma, a stage presence. As we see later, the splits and the jumps and the the yells. Um, It's it's crazy that he was that underappreciated right out of the gate. Absolutely. And so they're so good on tour. They're so incredible that they are outperforming Montrose. They are outperforming Journey. And the their sound guy has said, you know, the Montrose guys were cool, but 
I I know that the Journey guys were mad that they were losing cheers and girls and other stuff and I know they sabotaged our sound system things would happen and there was just no way that that happened unless we were being sabotaged and so they changed their tour they took them instead of playing the US they took them out to Europe to start opening for Black Sabbath now Black Sabbath was a band that they had they had sat and learned the songs. They were the, I mean, you, you listen to Van Halen's music and you, you know, oh yeah, those, those guys had to be influenced by Black Sabbath and now they're opening for them. And as it turns out, they're also blowing them off the stage. <laughs> and that's a quote from Ozzy Osbourne himself. Ozzy Osbourne said every night they would blow us off the stage. Wow. That's really cool. So, um, they're doing these tours. They uh, they had released the album, which we're we're about to jump into here in a second, um, in early 1978. But before even they did that early release album, before they started all these tours, they released a single. Do you know the re- the single that they released? I'm uh, guessing that the single was "You Really Got Me." That is correct. It, that was the first single that they released, and. It's questionable whether they really wanted that to be their first uh, release. We, I know for sure that Eddie didn't want it to be their first release. He was actually really disappointed that their first, that their debut single was a cover. And that makes sense to me because uh, "Running with the Devil" is a very strong song and seemingly a perfect yeah lead they, off. Yeah, they had been playing it for years. It was on the demo tape that they had done with Gene Simmons. It is an awesome song. But here's the here's the story behind the story on this one, okay? Yep. So they've got their their demo tape that they've done with Ted Templeman, the guy from Warner Brothers. And Eddie is super excited and he's playing it for friends and acquaintances and acquaintances of acquaintances. And one of those guys that he plays it for is Barry Brandt. Okay? Barry Brandt. Yeah, Barry Brandt, who none of us know. Right. But who happened at the time to be the drummer for a band called Angel. Okay. Angel was another band that Gene Simmons had discovered, but one that had actually signed with the record label. Now, have you heard of Angel before? Not until you just mentioned it. No, right. So I hadn't either. Um, now, we talked about the fact that that they had done a cover for their original release. This really, You Really Got Me, was originally sung by the Kinks back in 19, released back in 1964, and it's the perfect type of song for some hard rock. It's an awesome, awesome song. It was a great hit for the Kinks um, and influenced a lot of the hard rock that came after that. Um, But the idea that, hey, 14 years later, it's going to be popular again, suddenly was very enticing to Barry Brandt. Because the next day, Ted Templeman calls Eddie and said, did you play the tape for somebody? And he's like, I played it for a bunch of people. What are you talking about? He's like, you a-hole, that, there's a band out there called Angel that's about to try to record that song and release it. We have to record it first and release it, or we're going to be the second ones to the table. And so, in a in a mad dash, they go and recur, record their studio version that we've all heard, um, and get it out and release it to the public before Angel is able to do the same. And history is history is written. That's incredible. And Angel fades into the cloudy dust of history. 
So now that we're here, let's start talking about the actual debut album. Let's shall we? Yeah, oh yeah, okay. absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, so it's 1978. They're putting together this album. Their first release is You Really Got Me. Um, it blows up. It is so awesome. You really got me reached number 36 on the Hot 100 among a whole bunch of disco and pop and punk rock songs. Not bad for your first thing. No, not bad at all. And so uh, it, the first time I ever heard it was when I was watching the movie Night Shift, which was right, right. Uh, a movie by Ron Howard. Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton and... Henry Winkler, the, the Fonz. himself. Yes. And the, the premise of the movie is these guys work in a morgue and decide to open a prostitution ring inside of the morgue. That movie is so funny. Oh, yeah. So there's a scene where Henry Winkler, who is so not the Fonz in this movie, hears you really got me playing as he's walking into the building and he's all confused and he opens the door to this ridiculous frat party and Michael Keaton's got like a belt around his head like a headband and <laughs> partying hard with half-naked prostitutes all over the place and Henry Winkler is freaking out. Get out of here! I don't know about you people. This is a morgue. You're partying in a morgue. You don't believe me? Let's go take a look at Rigor Mortis in room 12. And he tries to pull out this... This will bring you back to reality. ...dead body to show him. I want you all to see this! Turns out it's just a frat boy and a prostitute inside of the cadaver box. And the... The frat boy was the Clint boy Howard. Was Clint Howard, that's right. <laughs> so, um, You Really Got Me is released, and then they released the album itself. Now, imagine how everyone felt the first time that they plugged that album in and listened to that sound and then that bass coming in. That sound that you hear at the beginning that is obviously not a musical instrument is car horns. And as it turns out, it's 
it's a stunt that they did, a tactic that they used on stage. They took the car horns out of their cars, put, hooked them up to a car battery, and would play, even when they played the show live, it would have that car horn introduction. And so they went ahead and brought them into the studio. Ted Templeman slowed them down there a bit at the end that you can uh, you can hear the slowdown. It's almost the Doppler effect as though it's going by. And then that hard-hitting bass. And, you know, God bless them. They've got the, the guy who's redefining how to play guitar, and they start the first song on the first album with car horns and the bass. <laughs> but they're letting, they're letting everybody know we're about hard rock. This is one of those rock songs that has two guitar solos in it, which is pretty unique for that, for any time, really. Not a whole lot of songs where you can get two guitar solos, but why wouldn't you do that if you've got Eddie Van Halen? If you got Eddie Van Halen, you let him play as much as possible. Absolutely. You want to play more? Okay. That's right. They recorded this album for $40,000, took three weeks to record, and that's it. So, Run With The Devil is not only the uh, first song that you hear on the album, it is their second single that they release. Yes. And it does... It does well. It reaches number 84 on the top 100, which, again, at this time, with the taste in music as it is, that's that's a great feat for a band's debut album. Yes. So tell me about uh, Finger Tapping and Eruption. Okay, so the B-side to Running With The Devil is Eruption. It's also the second song um, on, the, on the album. And uh, it's... Almost all Eddie. So um, I can remember vividly watching Eddie perform this live on stage. I hadn't, you know, we should probably explain that. I was born in 1975. I was not listening to, to Van Halen when I was three years old. Right. The introduction that I had to Van Halen was 1984. Me too. Me right. Too. I was born in 1973. Okay. But 1984 was the first time I was paying attention to him. Right. Was 1984 was one was one of three tapes that were the first three tapes that I ever owned. It was 1984, uh, Minute Work, and uh, Wham. <laughs> the collection of music Wait, there for you. Before you go, go. <laughs> that was a great song. <laughs> so, Eruption, I can remember the first time I saw it, and it was a live performance, and it was actually at the time that they were with um, Sammy Hagar. That it was by then that I, I had actually I heard Eruption for the first time and was was floored by it, and so I knew at that point that that Eddie did finger tapping and what was involved there. But this this finger tapping that he does in Eruption, uh, I looked at that and I was just like, this isn't this isn't rock and roll. This is classical music. Okay, it's rock and roll and cla- it's I don't know what it is. It's like something amazing and and undefinable, but. I totally, so when I was growing up, I was, I, I was into classical music. There was an album called Hooked on the Classics that came out in like, I think, 82. And I loved it. Hey, that's probably about the time Chipmunk Punk came out, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I was listening to the Chipmunks and Bach and Beethoven and Mozart, right? Uh, uh, that's right. Good job. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what kind of street cred I'm going to get for that. Um but anyway, when I heard uh, Eddie Van Halen performing Eruption, I was like, this is classical music. And not only that, I, I knew the song. Um, do you, did you ever watch uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Disney movie that had like uh, it, no. Captain Nemo and they're in the submarine and they get the big squid that attacks them? Well, I'm familiar with it, but I've never seen it. There's a part of that movie for anybody who's seen it where Captain Nemo, who's played by 
George, good old George. George, our buddy George. Mason, George Mason. George Mason. And so he's Captain Nemo, and he's got this organ, and they kind of read, if you watched any of the Pirates of the Caribbean, they've kind of done the same type of, they they reimagined that with the, the squid guy there. But anyway, he's playing this song, and the song is Bach's Toccata and Fugue. And it kicks butt. I don't care if it was written several hundred years ago. It kicks butt. And when I'm listening to Eddie Van Halen playing Eruption live on stage, I'm like, that is Takata and Fugue. But it's not. It is. But it's not. So I I want you to listen to it. Okay. You can see what I'm saying here. Let's hear it. Okay. So this this is the scene from 20,000 Leagues. So now let's listen to the live performance by Eddie. Right, so that one is probably that one is probably actually from Franz Liszt, which was a very prominent song that you would hear in Looney Tunes. But remember, Eddie's classically trained on the piano. Of course, that's his influence. Say what you will about his influences, he'll say that pretty much his only influence was Eric Clapton, um, and he would learn all of Eric Clapton's songs. Um, Eric Clapton was called Slow Hand. Eddie, no one would dare that's call right. that to him. Right. Um, but that was it. That's all he'll say. But there's no question that the classics, the classical composers are the ones that really influenced the, the, the music that he plays, especially on Eruption. So, as you pointed out, there's special techniques that are involved there with Eruption. So, Eddie goes, when they're younger, he goes and they get to watch Led Zeppelin play, like Led Zeppelin's playing in California at that time, and so he gets to go see him. And at some point... Um, uh, Jimmy Page has got his guitar. He's got his left hand on the guitar, which is where you press the fretboard. Yes. And your right hand is normally what strums, but Jimmy's got his hand up in the air, like pointing like I'm number one, like we're awesome, that kind of thing. But he's still playing with his left hand. And he's what he's doing is he's pounding on the string with the finger, which causes it to make a sound, and then pulling that off as though he's kind of plucking it uh, to also make it make another sound. And so that's those are called hammer-ons, and pull-offs. Not terribly creative, but easy to understand, right? Right, right. And so as Eddie's watching this, he sees him do this, and the inspiration is there for him, and he's like, I can do that. I can do that with both both hands. hands. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's got one hand in the air. He's not even using the hand. If I took that hand and put it on the fretboard with the other fingers, I'm not just able to play two notes now. I'm not just able to play three notes. I can play four and five notes. I could because I can tap on the strings and do my hammer-ons and my pull-offs with my right hand, and that's tapping, and that's the that is the that is really the key thing that he brought to the the lead guitar scene for the next twenty years. All right, so that's the end of episode one, Van Halen. Yeah, we're gonna come back uh, next week and do part two. 
The Rise and Fall of Dave Lee Roth. Yeah, so hang on for that one. Come join us, and you'll get to hear some fun stuff. We'll play a little bit of that for you right now. Uh, They came back from the tour, and they were exhausted 11 solid months on tour. and 11 months of killing it every night. Hard work. They get back. The manager of the record company says, Great job. You guys did awesome. You owe us $3 million in a new record. (laughs) What? 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 Uh, squeeze me? (laughs) (laughs) So, Guinness Book of World Record, they got $1.5 million for a 90-minute set. They make more money than anybody has for that, but tensions are still high. Tensions are high. Even a million dollars an hour can't cure some of the tensions that are going on. No. So during 1983, they begin working on a new album to come out at the very end of 1983. Yep. And that album is called 1984. This is a new Van Halen. The diehard Van Halen fans are are getting mixed reviews. Some of them are sticking with them. Some of them are like, I don't know what's going on with these guys. You get those guys who think they sold out, and so then all of a sudden, if it's popular, they're not interested anymore. Yeah, I don't care about you. I hate those guys. (laughs) Hot for Teacher comes out with the young Van Halen boys running around the school terrorizing. Right. You've got Miss Phys Ed and Miss Spelled and Miss Science or whatever, and the the teachers running around. (laughs) You've got his kind of awkward sighing mother and then when Waldo speaks he's got this unusually deep voice oh mom you know I'm not like other guys I'm nervous and my socks are too loose you know who that voice is right no that voice is Phil Hartman of Saturday Night Live oh Phil Hartman God rest his soul their success is beyond what has it has ever been in history they are literally at the top of their game and this is where it falls apart so 8 o'clock in the morning they were supposed to be there to write and play music Dave would show up about 11 start a fight and then leave he unbeknownst to them goes and finds another group of guys to play with produces an album a four song album which he says hey you know any album's only got four good songs on it anyway i'm just cutting off the fat as it turned out there were only really two good songs on the album (laughs) this is the ego speaking right here he does an interview with david letterman in early 85 talking about that album and dave is trying to find out what's going to happen with the rest of the band i think now's a good time on new year's to decide whether you're going to be a hot dog or a little weenie You're doing solo work. Is the is the does this mean that the band will soon be uh, breaking up? No, no. Now that happens, you know. No, I still have very, <laughs> I still have very strong tribal instincts, and we'll be going into uh, the studio like the middle of this month and start arguing again, and we'll we'll come back out with an album sometime this year, hopefully. He he has this full expectation that the band's going to stay together, mm-hmm. but. You can't be the guy who goes and trashes the meetings, the guy who berates somebody for going and doing work with other people, and then pull off this stunt and expect to remain in the band. Dave is out. Dave's out in 1985. Right. At the pinnacle of their professional career. To Van Hagar. The first time I heard it was on the movie Joe Dirt. <laughs> No, sir, man. I don't like that crap. I'm a rocker, dude, through and through. Here's my favorite bands, ACDC, 
Van Halen, not Van Hagar. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Sammy officially joins the band in 1985. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. All right, guys. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. At Shirley Podcast on Twitter. At Shirley Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Shirley You Can't Be Serious Podcast channel. All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the Fair Use Agreement under the U.S. Copyright Law.